Mark your calendars! The ADCES 24 Annual Conference parades into New Orleans August 9-12, through 12, 2024. Registration opens March 26, but you can start planning your trip now. Get ready to seize opportunities to connect, learn, and optimize your diabetes care and education practice. Stay tuned for updates at ADCES24.org. Hello, and welcome to ADCES's podcast, The Huddle, Conversations with the Diabetes Care Team. In each episode, we speak with guests from across the diabetes care space to bring you perspectives, issues, and updates that elevate your role, inform your practice, and ignite your passion. I'm your host, Angela Forfia, and I'm the Associate Director of Diabetes Education and Prevention Programs at the Association of Diabetes Care and Education Specialists. As a diabetes care and education specialist or another healthcare professional on the diabetes care team, the thought of a highly motivated individual who wants to meet all of their treatment targets probably sounds great. But when that drive is toward unrealistic expectations or rooted in a fear of failure or judgment, the consequences can be self-defeating, even harmful. Today, Alexis Skelly, and Care's Dispute join the huddle to talk about the dangers of perfectionism in diabetes. You'll learn the risks and signs of unhealthy perfectionism in diabetes or pre-diabetes management and get practical steps to help these individuals develop a more flexible approach. You may even get some pearls of wisdom you can use yourself. Alexis and Kirsty, welcome to the huddle. Would you introduce yourselves and share a bit about your background in your work in diabetes? Sure. So um, my name is Alexis Skelly, and I am a licensed clinical social worker and certified diabetes care and education specialist. Uh, so I've always had a passion for working with individuals with diabetes uh, since a young age. I grew up as a caregiver for a younger sibling with type 1 and worked in a clinical setting, both in outpatient nutrition and diabetes education, bariatrics, community health, private practice, primary care, lots of areas. So thanks for having me. All right. And Kirsty? It's great to be here. My name is Kirsty. I'm a licensed psychologist and I practice in university counseling and also a small private practice here in Utah. My specialties are anxiety, perfectionism, and sexual health. And I was actually already practicing when I got introduced to the diabetes space. My entry to the diabetes world came from a personal venue where I actually was diagnosed with LADA or type 1 um, in my early 30s. And I had no family history, no background in this, and suddenly had to start doing a whole bunch of diabetes management in my personal life. Mm -hmm. And it was a very rough start. Um, and as I started doing that, I started noticing my own perfectionism really flaring up because of the demands of managing diabetes. And I also started sort of attracting clients on my caseload who had diabetes themselves um, or other chronic health conditions and started to really understand the interplay between chronic health conditions and mental health. And so that's kind of what brings me here. Great. Thank you both for sharing your professional and personal journeys that have brought you to this moment on the huddle um, where we can talk about 
perfectionism and some of its consequences. So last year, you both gave a presentation at ADCES 21 that has really stuck with me. It was about unhealthy perfectionism and the dangers it poses to people who have to manage their diabetes, prediabetes, or other cardiometabolic conditions every day. I was lucky enough to be listening in on the session, and I remember messaging my colleagues saying, you know, run, don't walk, go listen to this session. It really spoke to me personally as a recovering perfectionist, and I'm sure some of our listeners may recognize themselves and the people they work with in that session and in your work. So can you explain how perfectionism can be too much of a good thing and how unhealthy perfectionism looks in people with prediabetes or diabetes? Absolutely. So first, understanding what perfectionism is. Perfectionism is a belief system. Mm -hmm. It's a few things. It's unrealistically high standards. And those standards are coupled with imagined rewards for meeting the standards. Often we imagine that things will happen that are not actually possible. <laughs> so we imagine if I can just be good enough, if I can just perform, then I'll never feel sadness or shame. I'll always be loved. I'll never have to struggle. In diabetes, that might look like I'll never have a complication ever. Mm -hmm. I'll have perfect, quote unquote, control because perfectionism thinks in terms of control where we know that's not a helpful word to use. Um, so it's these unrealistic expectations, imaginary rewards. And then if you don't meet your expectations, it's extreme criticism, self-punishment, self-loathing, self-hatred even. So that's what perfectionism is at its core. And what are the consequences of this all or nothing mindset? Like I'm either going to do everything perfectly and have some imagined amazing reward or I'm going to fail at everything and a whole cascade of negative things are going to happen. How does that affect people, especially when it comes to their health outcomes? Absolutely. And I think when we go back and we look at this sort of what we call like the excessive and avoidant approach, that excessive approach is what we typically think about when we think about perfectionism. And that's a message that we really want to convey is that perfectionism doesn't just show up in that way. But that's something that really tends to be communicated in the more clinical setting, right? And something that we tend to praise in a clinical setting. And when I see someone who is trying to meet those ideals that are or practicing that sort of excessive perfectionism, I'm questioning like, A, how sustainable is this, right? Is mm -hmm. it something that we can keep up or like, is the bottom about to fall out? And B, you know, how is this affecting your mental health? Are you under extreme anxiety? Are you feeling burned out? How's that affecting other areas of your life that are probably being sacrificed in order to meet those ideal expectations? And so the other side of things that I think is really important for individuals to know is you'll have people that are like, how can I be a perfectionist? Like, I'm, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do or I'm failing, right? And that's really these individuals who avoid doing those things, whether it's checking blood sugar, taking meds, or even showing up to doctor's appointments mm -hmm. because they know they can't meet those unrealistic expectations, that sort of perfectionistic um, or excessive approach. And so those are the individuals that we typically uh, find as, as labeled as non-compliant, right? Mm -hmm. 
that comes along with a whole slew of, you know, mental health struggles as well that, you know, what's the point in trying if I know I'm going to fail? I love that, Alexis. And I would just add to as the individual who's using that avoidance, they often feel like the label perfectionist could not possibly fit. I can't tell you how many clients I've had who have said, I'm not a perfectionist. I'm failing at everything. Perfectionism is not about how much you're achieving. It's about the mindset you use to approach your life. Mm -hmm. And the avoidance, procrastinating, putting things off can be just as perfectionist as counting, checking, overdoing, over-researching. Great. This is also really staying with me here today. We'll talk after the podcast. Um, so as clinicians and mental health professionals yourselves, you have such a valuable perspective on how individuals can address this if they, like me, see this trait in themselves or their patients. So what are some of your favorite strategies to prevent the pitfalls of perfectionism? I think one of the big areas is definitely starting where you are, right? What is life like for you right now and adopting that growth mindset of this is where I am and what's achievable for me? What areas am I trying to improve or change? And those constant improvements really produce significant benefits and big results, you know, in all areas of life. But certainly when we think about perfectionism, starting really small, starting where you're at and having compassion for that. Mm -hmm. That compassion is a huge piece. One of the most research-backed interventions for perfectionism is self-compassion. So as an individual with diabetes, being able to relate to yourself with self-compassion means having mindfulness for what you're feeling, what you're experiencing, how hard it is, knowing that you're not alone, and then treating yourself with kindness, regardless of what your numbers look like, what your complications look like, what your other life variables look like, being able to treat yourself with kindness. Mm -hmm. As a provider, it's being able to treat clients or patients with that compassion, modeling it for them, being able to say, it's okay to focus on things other than just numbers in your visits with patients. Mm -hmm. Being able to lower expectations. I think there's a huge amount of fear with providers in lowering expectations, especially for clients who appear to be quote unquote non-compliant because they're using that perfectionistic avoidance. When actually lowering expectations or providing more realistic expectations can be super helpful because it lowers that stress, it lowers the need to be perfect and the fear that they're a terrible failure who's gonna die an early death if they don't hit their targets every single visit, mm -hmm. right? It's being able to consider this person as a whole person, not just a set of lab results. It's being able to hold the information you have as a provider lightly, knowing about population averages and A1C averages and time and rain averages, mm -hmm. knowing that information and also knowing the person in front of you, being able to hold the numbers lightly and hold the person as a person. I'm going to follow up, Kirsty, on something that you said, which is, you know, focusing on things other than numbers. So I spend a lot of my professional life on the diabetes prevention side. And, you know, as you know, in population health, 
BMI and BMI ranges can be helpful as we think about risk as a population level phenomenon. But when we get down to that individual level, when we're seeing someone as a whole person, they, you know, have limited predictive power when we're looking at someone who's actually in our office or sitting across the table from us. So these arbitrary numbers, whether it's BMI or waist circumference or A1C or time and range, they can be damaging if our focus becomes completely on those numbers versus our ADCES 7 self-care behaviors like healthy coping, being active, taking medication. Even in diabetes care, I've noticed recently a transition from focusing on glycemic targets to focusing on weight or weight loss targets. So could you share your thoughts about how this topic can be broached with patients? And what are some of the challenges of talking about weight or talking about these numbers with patients that might be struggling with perfectionism? Absolutely. I'm glad you brought this up. I have a lot to say about weight and the way we talk about it and focus on it. First is that BMI was never meant to be used with individuals. If you look at Mm -hmm. the history of BMI, It was never meant to be used as a clinical tool, and it's not effective for the vast majority of patients. We know that for racial minorities, BMI is often inaccurate, and we also know there's a high percentage of racial minorities who are in this cardiometabolic spectrum. Mm -hmm. So using weight and BMI from the get-go is a bad idea. But because we've been using it for many years, we have a lot of research about the way focusing on weight can affect people. And what we know is that over 98% of intentional weight loss efforts fail, meaning people regain the same weight and typically more weight than they lost to begin with. And then they may try to lose weight again, lose for a short period of time, regain, and end up at a higher weight each time. This process of losing and regaining weight is called weight cycling. There's a ton of research that the risks we often associate with quote-unquote obesity when you control for weight cycling are actually highly related to the weight cycling process. So if someone is naturally in a higher weight body, they don't have the same risk factors that people who have weight cycled have. Mm -hmm. Also, if you control for weight stigma, so being oppressed, discriminated against, teased, judged, even by or especially by medical providers for being in a higher weight body. Weight stigma is another big contributor to the risk factors we typically assume are just about quote unquote obesity. Mm -hmm. And so I love what you said, Angela, about these behaviors, these ADCES self-care behaviors, because what the research shows is that focusing on weight as an outcome tends to backfire. But focusing on behaviors as a gift we give ourselves, Mm -hmm. as a way to promote health, because we have so many beautiful things we want to do with our lives. And having improved health can help us access some of those beautiful things, right? Using self-compassion to motivate the way we take care of ourselves is much more sustainable, whether the number on the scale changes or not. And I would say you don't even need to be using a scale. I'll cite really quick this study I found recently that's super interesting. They looked at exercise behaviors. They followed people for six weeks 
and had them at the beginning of each week say, I'm going to exercise for this many minutes on these specific days. Mm -hmm. At the end of the week, they asked them, okay, which ones did you follow through on? And they were looking at that prediction versus follow through. And they grouped the people into two groups based on their history of procrastinating, right? So my perfectionism flag's going up because I'm like, oh, procrastinating is often about perfectionism. (laughs) So they have a group of people who tend in life to procrastinate more and who tend to procrastinate less, these two groups. And unsurprisingly, when they look at exercise follow through, it's much higher in the group of people who don't procrastinate as much. It's much lower in the group of people who do procrastinate. Where it gets interesting is they also measured self-compassion. And when you look at the high procrastinating group who tend to have tough follow through or low follow through on their plans to move their bodies, people in that group who had high levels of self-compassion had the same follow through and exercise as the low procrastinating group. There was no statistical difference. What this tells us is that self-compassion is an effective intervention for helping us do health behaviors. Exercising out of punishment and shame and hating our body is not going to work in the long run. And that stress response is going to backfire on our blood sugars. Mm -hmm. Doing those same behaviors out of love and care and concern for ourselves makes us much more likely to keep doing them over time. Yeah, this is great information. Um, I actually just finished reading a very small, thin book, but it was about cleaning your home, keeping your house clean, and how sometimes we, you know, sort of use that as a cudgel of like, you know, I, I should dust, look how messy my sink is. And instead of us serving, you know, our space, like, think about how our space is serving us. You know, I'm creating spaces that serve me. I'm creating spaces that I can do work in um, and sort of shifting that narrative and seeing the beauty of a messy sink. You know, like my messy sink means that I'm, you know, preparing food and I'm nourishing my family and injecting that compassion into something as simple as, you know, a messy sink or a floor drobe of (laughs) laundry that hasn't been folded yet. And I think that, you know, again, that's moving the focus from, you know, this imagined perfect outcome to these behaviors that you can do and injecting that compassion into that space, you know, even if it's the physical space that you live in or the space you inhabit in your body. um, I think it's very similar. So this is all great information. Um, It's certainly causing my, you know, wheels to spin. Um, And this is also the perfect spot for a 30 second break and an important message from ADCES. ADCES 22 on-demand access is available from August 22 through October 24. If you already registered for ADCES 22 in Baltimore, then on-demand access is included in your registration, free of charge. If you missed the in-person event, this is your chance to access select recorded education sessions and earn up to 20.5 continuing education credits. While you're there, visit the virtual exhibit hall and access leading education, research, and industry posters. Visit adces22.org for more details. Are you an advanced practitioner looking for a way to demonstrate your diabetes expertise? 
If so, consider the Board Certified in Advanced Diabetes Management Certification. The application deadlines are May 1st and November 1st each year. Learn more at diabeteseducator.org forward slash BCADM. And we're back. Uh, your points so far highlight just how lifestyle coaches, healthcare professionals, diabetes care and education specialists can help the progress of someone struggling with perfectionism. Um, and as I said at the start of this episode, my name is Angela and I'm a recovering perfectionist. So I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone. There are probably people listening to this podcast right now who are on their own journeys of recovery from unhealthy perfectionism. So you touched on self-compassion as a solution, but what are some other ways that listeners can identify those signs of perfectionism in patients and show up for them in the way they need, especially since the provider themselves may be struggling with perfectionism and burnout? Yeah, I think definitely it's important that we don't forget the human element and just asking open-ended questions and owning some of our own humanness sometimes too, by being able to say things like, you know, I struggle with this sometimes. And I find that a lot of other people I work with uh, struggle in this area as well, mm -hmm. or, you know, just getting curious and asking some of those open-ended questions about some of the challenges that they, they might be facing really will have a lot of insight into whether or not they're struggling with perfectionism or other areas that are challenging them as well. I love that, Alexis, because I think as providers, we have a lot in common with people with diabetes and with perfectionists. We, there's, if there was a Venn diagram, there would be a lot <laughs> of shared space. <laughs> we know there's higher rates of burnout among healthcare providers. The last couple years of this pandemic have taken a toll. Mm -hmm. Providers are burnout. They're tired. So are people with diabetes there's higher rates of mental health concerns, of perfectionism, even of suicide among both of these groups. Mm -hmm. And so it's not that as a provider, we need to be always self-disclosing or making it about us, but being able mm -hmm. to say we have a lot in common. And even if we didn't, we're both humans and we can try and bring, like Alexa said, that human element mm -hmm. into it. It's important not to just jump into problem solving. If you survey patients about what they wish their doctor did more, it's not that they want more lectures or more advice or more problem solving. Everyone wants more listening. Mm -hmm. They want their provider to see them and hear them as an actual person. And I want to acknowledge there's a systemic piece that makes this hard. The managed care system, the way we bill for visits, the structure of most medical and mental health practices is not set up for this. And so it is going against the grain. Mm -hmm. It is, I would say, even radical to listen, to see people as human rather than just numbers on a chart. Um, it's also important as the provider to notice your own burnout. When I'm struggling to hear people and listen to people, it's probably either because I feel like I'm not helping them. They have a question I don't have an answer to, and that triggers some insecurity in me or defensiveness. Or it's when I'm burnt out. Maybe I'm working too much or maybe there's stress in my personal life. 
So as a provider, being able to practice that same self-care, that same self-compassion, again, I know this is going against the system, but taking time off if you can. You know, I recently adjusted my schedule to give myself a slightly longer lunch break. And that's a privilege that I have in the role that I have that I'm at a point where I can do that. But it's made my post-lunch sessions much more effective. And so being able to say, I am a human and I have human needs like food and water and rest and self-care and really prioritizing those as a provider. It's also important to note that it doesn't take a significant amount of time. I'm thinking about the demographics of individuals who are listening and from a number of different disciplines. In my background, I was always the mental health provider on a team of dietitians, nurses, other disciplines. And so I heard this a lot that individuals felt ill-equipped or I need. I haven't been trained to talk about mental health with individuals. And so not only there is there the, the time piece where I don't necessarily have the time to ask questions and have a, you know, conversation with folks about, you know, their mental health, because we know how a number of settings work is, you know, that we're just back to back with patients and busy. But really, the important thing to note is that it doesn't take as much time as you may think to just take a moment and connect with an individual and really just ask, how are you? How are you doing? How's your mental health, your mental fitness? Mm-hmm. And individuals, I, I, I feel like I'm afraid. I don't know what they're going to say. I might open Pandora's box. I don't know how to deal with it if they tell me that they're, they're struggling mentally or, you know, they're having these depressive thoughts. And again, I just encourage folks to just be human. How would you talk to anyone, you know, outside of that setting too? And, and just that asking those questions and holding space for even a two to five minute conversation can make a significant impact. And in my experience, those are the moments, those are the, the visits that individuals find most impactful and memorable and really move forward with change because of that. So I would empower anyone listening, no matter of your discipline or background, you know, to have that courage to just open up and allow people to, to tell you a little bit. Mm-hmm. I'll add real quick too, if you feel like there's absolutely no wiggle room in your brief visits with clients, Think bigger. Think of the system. You operate in some sort of healthcare setting. People complete paperwork all the time, right? And we know that there are certain mental health concerns that are much more likely for people with diabetes, such as disordered eating, suicide, and depression and anxiety. All three of those have well-validated and often open access free assessment tools that healthcare providers can use. I would say at least once a year, you should be screening. When you order those yearly labs, also have them just complete these quick, you know, eating disorder, suicide, depression, anxiety skills. So you can check in on that. When it comes to mental health, I know sometimes we're a little tentative about opening the door with people with diabetes or prediabetes. And, you know, exactly as you said, Alexis, we may feel like we don't have the time or we may be worried that we're going to get quickly out of our depth and have to refer to a specialist. So can you offer any guidance about that, how to have those conversations and when to make the decision to refer? Absolutely. I'm going to go back to those uh, screening tools that Kirstie mentioned. 
those for eating disorders, suicidality, depression, anxiety. Uh, completing those on at least an annual basis gives some good insight there as to not only are these situations taking place, but their level of severity and whether or not referral is necessary. So those tools are super helpful in that regard. In addition to that, the ADA did publish a psychosocial standards of care for individuals with diabetes, which gives sort of a spectrum of these times when individuals are more vulnerable to diabetes distress or other mental health concerns. And so those are times we know certainly at onset, onset of complications, changes in medication, some sort of high risk times when individuals are more vulnerable to mental health challenges associated with diabetes or otherwise. Absolutely. It makes me think of my own diagnosis. It took a long time Mm -hmm. to actually get diagnosed in part because of that weight stigma we talked about earlier, because we know one of the symptoms of type one is unintentional weight loss. And my healthcare providers assumed that that must be a great thing. And I had a lot of comments from healthcare providers when I would say, hey, I don't know why I'm losing all this weight. They would say, well, any weight loss will be helpful for any other health conditions you have, right? And so I had to really advocate and change doctors and change doctors until I finally found someone who would actually order the labs, which showed, oh, I have an autoimmune disease that's killing my pancreas, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember when she came back into the room with my A1C of like 15 and said, how do you feel about needles? <laughs> and I was really overwhelmed, but I tried to keep it together because sometimes as a patient, you feel like you have to be the quote unquote good patient to be taken seriously. And after she gave me the information and the insulin and sample boxes and all of these things, um, she looked at me and she put one hand on my knee. I was sitting on the exam table and she said, this must be really hard for you. And I just burst into tears mm-hmm. and was like, it is. I was not expecting this. I didn't know you could get this disease without family history. And this is really scary. And she just said, I'm here for you. Call our office whenever you need. We're referring you to endo, but I'm still here for you. And we'll get through this together. That was it. I mean, that was what, a 15 second intervention? Yeah. But it was being authentic. It was being a human. It was putting herself in my shoes and being like, whoa, this woman in her early 30s has just had her entire life changed. This must be hard for her. Let me say that out loud, right? It was that simple. Mm -hmm. Being able to put yourself in their shoes and try and show that authentic empathy. So it doesn't take as It doesn't have to take as much investment or time as you might think to just touch on the mental health piece. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, as mental health professionals, Alexis and I will both say refer, refer to us. If you see something that's being touched on that feels like, oh, there might be a lot here, make sure that your practice has an up to date and fully fleshed out referral list for mental health providers in your area. We know that diabetes is a disease that requires an interdisciplinary approach, right? We've got care and education specialists, we've got nutritionists, we've got nurses, we've got all of these pieces. Don't forget your therapists. Don't forget your psychiatrists, 
right? Making sure that, again, at a system level, there's a process that makes it easy for you to refer out to additional care. Thank you so much for sharing your story and and also kind of pointing out how how simple it can be of just being a human being and seeing someone as another human being and saying, how are you? Or this must be hard for you. Or let's talk about this. Um, and not just looking at that A1C and just getting the referrals into the EHR, you know, um, but actually being present and listening. So thank you so much for your time and generosity in sharing, you know, your professional expertise and your personal story, all of these valuable insights um, that you've shared during our conversation. Are there any final thoughts you wish to leave our listeners with today? My final thoughts, I wanted to touch one more time on self-compassion and get a little bit more practical on what that looks like. Because I think when people hear that phrase, it feels very like hippie, woo-woo, like (laughs) peace and love. And I'm all for a little bit of hippie stuff. But I do want to emphasize that self-compassion is a research-backed intervention. There are a ton of research teams doing really good work on this. The resource I often point people to, and we can put these in the show notes as well, is a website and a book by Kristen Neff. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a researcher. The website is selfcompassion.org. Super recommend. There's a quiz. You can test your level of self-compassion. There's guided meditation practices. There's journaling exercises. There's specific tools about how to actually do this. And I think it's also important to know the roots of self-compassion come from a lot of Eastern philosophies like Taoism and Buddhism. So, you know, we in Western psychology are just barely tapping into something that has existed for a long time in the history of the world. And one of the ideas behind self-compassion uses the yin-yang, this idea that there's kind of two interconnected parts to our human experience. One is the yin, which is a more soothing, being, gentle presence. The -hmm. other is the yang, which is a more active, doing, changing, moving presence. With self-compassion, you need both of those. It is comfort and kindness and that yin soothing. It's also doing hard work, facing your fears, leaning into stuff that's hard, moving your body or taking those pills that you hate, right? Mm -hmm. Self-compassion is both soothing and doing. And I think we do a disservice when we assume that it's just the soothing. And then we, in Western culture, because we base everything on productivity and achievement and perfectionism, then we are really resistant to the idea of soothing and kindness. And we don't realize that it's this holistic picture and that it's a practice, Mm -hmm. not just an idea. It's something you do and you get better at over time. And sometimes that doing is showing care for future you. Yes. I am going to take care of future Angela by getting this done. Um, But other times it's like, I'm going to take care of current Angela because I need to just rest tonight. So, you know, both of those things have to kind of be in play. Alexis, did you have any other final thoughts to leave us with? Definitely the importance of, you know, this follows up with uh, self-compassion, but the importance of a growth mindset, right? And be compassionate again for where you are right now, right now. And 
uh, I, I love Angela, what you were saying about the right now me versus the future me and being self-compassionate for what my needs are right now, knowing that I'm working towards growth, working towards change, but this is what I can handle right now. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Right. And being self-compassionate in that, holding that space for yourself while continuing to make those sort of improvements. I think that's something that as healthcare providers who do have to take a look at these metrics and, you know, discuss those, being able to also have that space to communicate that self-compassion and that growth mindset that, yeah, this is the ideals that I'm obligated to communicate, but let's take a look at where you are now and what's realistic, what's doable and where we can start, even if it's super, super small. That is so powerful mm-hmm. and it is empowering to individuals. Great. Kirsty, Alexis, I um, probably am going to be listening to this podcast um, episode on repeat as I you know, walk to and from the train in the morning. But other than this podcast episode, where can our listeners learn more about your work? You can find me online. I have a website. It's drkirstiespute.com. We'll put it in the show notes because the spelling is tricky. There's a surprise J in there. You can also find me on social media. I'm most active on Instagram at Dr. Kirstie Spew. Talk a lot about anxiety, perfectionism, health, sexuality, stuff like that. I'll be releasing a couple courses, online courses on perfectionism in the next few months. I'm also presenting at ADCES this year. We've got a presentation on the overlap between people with diabetes and suicidality that will be on demand. And then we have another presentation with a colleague about diet culture and weight stigma Mm -hmm. and diabetes management. That one, unfortunately, won't be on demand. But if people are coming in person, please stop and say hi. As for me, um, in regards to speaking and things locally, I'll be doing some trainings for other healthcare providers and behavioral health providers that should be available on South Carolina AHEC in the next uh, few months, um, recordings there. And other than that, really the best place to find me is on Instagram at diabetes underscore therapist is probably the best place to find me and connect and communicate. Looking forward to hearing from individuals who would like to just connect and learn more. Great. Well, thank you so, so much for joining us on The Huddle. Kirsty. if you see someone running into your ADCES 22 sessions in a gray staff sweater, that person is going to be me. So look for me in the back of the room, (laughs) uh, writing down everything you say. (laughs) Thank you for listening to this episode of The Huddle. Notes and resources from today's episode are linked in the show notes at diabeteseducator.org slash podcast. And remember, being an ADCES member gets you access to many resources, education, and networking opportunities. Learn about the many benefits of ADCES membership at diabeteseducator.org slash join. The information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and may not be appropriate or applicable for your individual circumstances. This podcast does not provide medical or professional advice and is not a substitute for consultation with a healthcare professional. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions.